you'd open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles or swipe to wherever your Bible is in uh, Exodus chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, so far in our series, Jesus the True and Greater, uh, we've been looking at the left side of our Bible or the Old Testament, but the left side of our Bible, and we've been looking at a number of figures, right? Folks like Adam and Abel, Abraham, Moses, Isaac, David, Jonah, and even Melchizedek. I left Melchizedek for Pastor Adam. That's what happens when the senior pastor leaves. He leaves the hard ones for the other guys, right? <laughs> so Pastor Adam got to do Melchizedek. But we've been observing how these Old Testament figures uh, serve as types who prefigure and point us to Christ. There is something in them or in their life that is fuller and more complete in Jesus. And the reason the revelation of God has indicated them and told us about them is so that not just that we might know them in isolation, but that by them we might recognize our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there are more than just figures in the Old Testament that serve as types. There are features as well. And one of those features that we're looking at this morning is the Passover lamb. Um, and this is sort of this, this feature that accompanies Israel's exit out, out of Egypt and something that is prescribed by God for his refugees to continue to celebrate. It was to be an ongoing celebration. They practiced it for over a thousand years. It was something that Jesus celebrated with his disciples as well, at least three times. However, at the Last Supper, the celebration of Passover, Jesus infused this meal with new meaning and new significance, showing that it ultimately pointed to him. Even while it looked back and celebrated a deliverance, it pointed to Christ, who would be a greater Passover lamb for us. So that's the point this morning. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. My freshman year in college, I was down at Biola University. Um, I was blessed to have grown up in a missionary home and went to Christian school my whole life. But when I got to Biola, uh, I developed some friendships there um, with guys with whom I felt like I could be really transparent and honest about real things in my life. And just a couple of weeks in, um, I sort of felt safe enough with, these, with my roommates, both of them named Justin. We were in a, there was three of us in one little room. That was memorable. They were both named Justin. And anyways, I felt sort of safe enough and... Um, that I could be vulnerable with them. And I shared with them something that was hard and uncomfortable, but I basically said, up to this point in my Christian life that I didn't really understand um, why the death of Christ was necessary for salvation. And that might sound funny to you. You're like, you're a freshman in college and you didn't get that? Um, yeah. What, what I mean to say is I understood it from an operational standpoint, I knew that I needed to repent of my sin and trust in Christ as my Savior, and salvation was given to us that way. But I didn't really understand the mechanics of it. Um, you're here this morning. Presumably, you got here by car, I think. Maybe you pedaled, but most of you by car. You know how a vehicle works operationally. The steering wheel, there's pedals, the stick shift, ignition. You know how to get a car from here to there. You know the operational aspects of it. But not all of you understand what's happening under the hood. 
in the mechanics and all of the different systems, the ignition, the cooling system, the transmission, power turn, all this. You, you may not know how all of that works. Well, that's kind of where I was with my faith. I knew what I needed to do to lay hold of the gospel and sort of allow it to be operative in my life, but I didn't understand some of the mechanics, what was happening under the hood. And if that situation resonates with you, then you're left with some of the same questions that I had at that point in time, such as, why was the death of Jesus necessary? Why a sacrifice? What is it about blood? What is it about the blood of Jesus that is efficacious or effective for me? Why did he shed his blood? How does it apply to me as a sinner? What was actually accomplished in all of that? And again, these questions, these are sort of situated under the general category of what we call the doctrine of atonement, or as one person has called it, the doctrine of at-one-ment. <laughs> that is, having been separated and estranged from God, how is it that we are made one again? How is it that we are reconciled to him? So if repentance for sin and professing faith in Christ, if, if these are the operational aspects, sort of the steering wheel, you know, the stick shift, the ignition... Then the atonement is, again, the mechanics, what's happening under the hood, how Christ's sacrifice works to make us one with a holy God. And the Passover lamb is one aspect, one of the lambs, so to speak, that helps us understand the atonement of Christ, just one of. Um, so in Exodus 12, we kind of see the history of this. I want to give you a little background because we're parachuting in. Uh, we see, uh, first of all here, that what began as a, basically a few Hebrew refugees looking for food in a time of famine coming into Egypt turned out to be a 400-year stay, when it, something that had morphed into slavery. And uh, conditions worsening as the population grew to the point where there was over a million um, Jews in captivity in Egypt. Moses has been commissioned by God and sent to rescue Israel from Egyptian slavery. However, Pharaoh maintained his tight grip, right? Not wanting to lose his workforce. So God's sending not only Moses, but then sends 10 plagues, almost as if one plague for each of his, you know, tightly gripped fingers, right? To pluck them off of God's people. And interestingly enough, I don't know if you knew this or not, but these plagues are not just arbitrary irritations, you know, because if they were, we know, then God certainly would have sent a plague of cats, Okay. That, anybody would have repented to that. Can you imagine? Cats everywhere, fighting, meowing, coughing up hairballs, the dander. It sounds terrible. That's a bad plague, right? Okay, I've pushed the line as far as I can. I can feel it. I can feel it. Actually, each one of these plagues that are sent are specifically directed towards one of the false deities of Egypt's polytheistic practice. It is God's way of saying, I am the true and the living God. There is no other God before me or other than me. These are my people and we're going. That's what God is doing by sending these plagues. But with each one, Pharaoh hardens his heart, tightens his grip. So God ratchets up the intensity to 10, the plague of the firstborn because he is intent on freeing his people. So with that, Exodus 12, 1. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or from the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now, first of all, when we read this and we hear about this terrible plague, this tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, we should absolutely be shocked and stricken. This is hard. Firstborns are going to die everywhere. That's an awful thing. But as we can see here, as severe as God's judgment is, it does not fall without an opportunity for escape. And we're going to come back to that. As severe as the judgment is, it does not fall without opportunity for escape. So first of all, what we see is this initial Passover lamb that we're looking at here, it actually wasn't a sacrifice for sin. When we think of lambs uh, in the Old Testament, we typically think of what's known as a lamb that is sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, which was a sin offering. And in fact, even on that day, there wasn't just one. Did you know that there were two? One was to be sacrificed, its blood sprinkled upon the altar for the sin of the people. But on the other, the priest would lay his hands on it and confess the sin of the people and send it out into the wilderness. It's known as the scapegoat. That's where we get that from. The visual is that sin is serious, that it must be punished, that it must be expiated, to use a technical word. And that was the imagery of the one that was sacrificed for atonement. And then the other, they got to see the picture of this lamb sort of leaving as though the sin is being removed from the people. So that's often what we think of uh, when we think of a lamb uh, being sacrificed. A lamb was sacrificed for sin, but that was on the Day of Atonement. That's distinct from the Passover lamb. But let's continue with atonement here just for a minute. Um, Gregory Kokel, he's one of our CTF speakers. He's got a great uh, quote on this. He says this about the Lamb of Atonement. He says, The sacrificial system God gave the Hebrews, as important as it was, served only as a kind of sop, a temporary measure to cover man's moral wound for the moment. It was temporary. It was sort of a token, if you will. 
uh, kind of like your credit card bill arrives. You open it up and you think, wow, I must have had some automotive repairs done or something. Ah, look at my balance. And you think, I'd love to pay off my whole credit card, and you should. I'm pointing to myself as well. We should. But maybe you can't. You can't afford it this month. And so next to the full balance, of course, it says minimum payment. Ah, yay, the minimum payment. You make the payment, and you stay in the good graces of your creditors, and you stay alive until the next billing cycle, right? Uh, you can't afford to pay the whole thing. You know someday you, it will have to be paid, but you can't do it. Well, the Day of Atonement was like this. It was sort of as, as if God's people were sort of making the minimum payment, staying alive until the next billing cycle, showing their participation in the redemptive plan of God with hopes and with faith that God would ultimately provide for the full balance and the full debt that was owed because only Jesus Christ has the merit to pay the full debt of humanity, okay? But that's kind of what the Day of Atonement was like. The Passover lamb, however, is distinct from this. As we saw, as we read Exodus 12 and the story there, it was sacrificed initially as a sign of faith. It wasn't a sacrifice for sin, but an indication that we are in obedience to God, seeking refuge from his coming judgment in the way of provision that he has provided for us. Initially, it was a sign of faith. What we find, however, is that continually, as it goes on, it becomes different. It becomes a way of celebrating what God had done. But what I want to differentiate at first here, just to make sure you've got it, lamb at the Day of Atonement and a Passover lamb, two different things. The lamb on the Day of Atonement was, it was filled with repentance, contrition. It was about sin. But the Passover lamb was a celebration. It was a rejoicing that God has already provided for and delivered us. And so in the same way that we have Good Friday, and Easter. Good Friday is kind of a somber reflection upon the death of Christ. Easter is anything but somber. It's celebratory that God has delivered us in Christ Jesus. And that's sort of how these two work together. Well, as you probably know or remember, God, in fact, did deliver uh, Egypt through uh, the deliverance uh, or through the, the death of the firstborn here. And so we'll pick up on that, um, Exodus 12, 29. <coughs> At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. And so here we see the deliverance that God had promised. He provides. The problem here is this. God's people are forgetful, which I take a little comfort in because I'm forgetful and as I age, I'm not old, but I can see it from here. I made old man noises just picking up a piece of paper at the beginning of service here. <laughs> God knows that his people are forgetful. When we are in need, when we're in crisis, we cry out to him. 
When the credit card bill comes, we go, oh, Lord, help me, right? When the car breaks down, oh, Lord, help me get home safely. When our job is in jeopardy, Lord, please deliver me. I got to pay my bills. When food is short and groceries are high, God, help us through this season. When we are in need, when we're feeling the pinch, we reach out, we cry out to the Lord. But when things are going well, do you notice that you sort of skip through life in a pretty self-reliant fashion? God gets pushed to the margins, not in the front of our prayers, not in the front of our thoughts. And I, I firmly believe that is one of the reasons that God brings trials into our life is so that we will continually recognize that we rely upon him, that it's in him that all things hold together. But one of God's other strategies to keep us reliant upon him is actually this sort of commemorating or ritual practices so that we will remember. So we end up rehearsing and practicing and dramatizing things that God has done so that we will recall. And the Passover was to be this. It was to be a continual celebration to remember God's prior work. That's our next point. An observation, but a celebration. And that's the point I want you to hear. It was celebratory. They delighted in it. They loved to practice it. Even the elements of the meal, right? The lamb that would be roasted and eaten uh, were to commemorate the having to put blood over the, the doorposts. The bread, the unleavened bread, eaten without any yeast in it, because we don't have time for this bread to rise. We're leaving tonight. And so it's to remember the haste. The bitter herbs that were to be eaten were to remind them of the bitter time of slavery. God designed a meal so that viscerally and sensory they would recall all of these things and remember God's deliverance in a celebratory fashion. And this celebration that was sweet, that they looked forward to, was made even sweeter by Jesus, who infuses this celebration with new meaning. Jesus, celebrating the Passover with his disciples, infuses it with new meaning. Uh, turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, to Luke, if you would, chapter 22. And we can see Jesus' delight here in celebrating Passover. Luke 22, verse 14. Boy, it's hot in here. Good thing I didn't preach on hell this morning, huh? It would have been effective. Luke twenty-two fourteen. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink it again for the fruit of the vine until, from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body. If you're the underlining type, if you underline in your Bibles, underline the word my. This is the emphasis, the new emphasis, the new infusion of truth that Jesus is giving to them. It's his body that's going to be sacrificed. And he goes on. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
So by doing this, Jesus is saying that he is the true and the better Passover lamb. Even as Israel celebrated for more than a thousand years God's past deliverance, what Jesus is teaching his disciples to practice now is the fuller and greater deliverance that he is about to give them by virtue of his own sacrificed body. The implication of this for those who are in Christ, God, the righteous judge, will pass over us. I love the imagery of the Lord's Supper as we celebrate it together. If you think about it, we take, we take the bread and we have this cup and we, we appropriate it. We take it into us. We internalize it. It nourishes us. And in the same way, faith in Jesus Christ is just that. We're not just knowing that something is true, but we have appropriated it, laid hold of it, internalized it, and are nourished by it. We make it operative in our life by God's grace. Now, I want to stop here, too, and just talk quickly about judgment because this is a hard thing to think about the fact that God is coming through Egypt and wiping out the firstborn, or even that God is coming back and that a fuller judgment is coming. We don't like thinking about that. In fact, I would say this. There is nothing worse than judgment. Nothing worse than judgment except non-judgment. God is not good if he does not judge. Let me give you an example of this. The rapper, R. Kelly, has been convicted of, I don't know how many counts, uh, of, of being a pedophile. Or how about Jeffrey Epstein? Or more recently, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, the woman who established points of trust with young girls so that she might bring him into his chambers. So we could say, well, you know, judgment's hard. Let's, gosh, let's just be loving and gracious and forgiving and just ah, let it go. No big deal. That's not good. You see that? God is not good if he does not judge. But as we already saw, God does not let the severity of his judgment fall without first providing a way of escape. And he has done so in the person of Jesus Christ. In the same way that Israel could take refuge from the judgment that was coming of the firstborn, so we can take refuge from God's future coming by taking refuge in the one that was born for us, Jesus the Savior, the Son of God. Uh, I was looking at my map uh, earlier this week. I pulled out my phone and I was wondering... There's a lot of fires um, in Alaska. I wonder where they are. So I opened up the map and looked at it. Oh, they're everywhere, right? They're everywhere. Where isn't there a fire? That's where I should be right now. Uh, and I was reading about one that was kind of uh, sort of close out towards the Chattanooga. I've got some friends with a cabin out there, and I was just wondering how close this was. And they had issued an evacuation order, and they had, in fact, elevated it and said, evacuate now, leave, go right? It wasn't just, you're on high alert. It was, go now, go immediately. And in the same way, I'm here to tell you, God's judgment is coming. But I'm not just putting you on notice. I'm giving you the evacuation order. Go now, immediately. You don't know what day that comes. And God has provided a way of escape through faith in his son, Jesus. That God's, that sin would be punished in Christ, 
and not punished in you. That he would be your lamb of atonement, your scapegoat, and your Passover lamb, all of them. That his death would be applied to you, his shed blood applied to you, and you might know salvation. Back in 2006, um, I had a chance to, <clears throat> to travel to Ethiopia where we have a child sponsorship program called Meet the Needy. Uh, and it was really a wonderful honor to see the kids and to see how they're being blessed by the, the ministry there. Um, as a pastor, I was the honored guest for dinner. And so uh, I, I thought this was a, a great thing. The, the elders came over to me and told me about this honor, and this all sounded wonderful until I realized that with this honor came the responsibility to kill dinner. <laughs> and I'm a hunter. I've taken some moose, I've taken some bears, I've taken a caribou, uh, you know. I, I'm generally okay with something at 200 yards away, or, you know, that's all right. But what they did is they walked in this lamb, and a couple of guys grabbed the back legs, or one guy grabbed the back legs, one guy grabbed the front legs, and they kind of picked it up and laid it on its side. And then they handed me what looked like a machete, pretty crude, but a sharp blade. And then one man held the neck back. And they rolled it over and they said, Pastor, <laughs> right under the chin, quickly and as deep as you can. And I'm kind of sitting here like, I don't want to do this, you know. I don't even know if I want to eat this in a couple of hours. We've got to get on an airplane. This is not the meal before flying that I'm looking for. Um, but then I kind of thought about it, and I thought, when am I ever going to have a chance to do this again? Okay. So I took the knife, and it was amazing to sit there and look at this animal laying down, and even the passage that Ginger read earlier today, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. It was silent. It laid there, and I'm not trying to be gross, but I want you to remember this and to hear this. It looked at me. I'm looking at its eye and its throat, and I kneel down, and I take the machete, and I go deep and fast as, hard, as quick as I can, trying to create as much blood as quickly as possible. And it bled out in front of us, and I watched the life leave its body. This is the imagery that God has provided us for what Christ has been for us and what we did to him. We are the ones who took his life as it left its body because of our sin. That is how good and how kind he has been to us. I will never forget uh, that imagery. And I will never think about the priests of God as simply these academics in the law again. They were butchers with bloody hands as they sacrificed for the people of God. And so were the heads of families on the initial day of Passover and every celebration after that. Can you imagine annually, if that's what you did for your family, knowing your sins, your family's sins, and you laid that animal down, and you took its life again, and you celebrated the deliverance of God in the past, and you looked forward to the way that he would provide for your future, you would have a sense of the gravity of your sin and of the kindness of Christ. Amen? And that is the point that we have here. For those of us who are in Christ, we have been delivered, particularly from the bondage of sin. Um, 
In Christ, the guilt is removed from us of our sin. We're forgiven. In Christ, the shame is dismantled because we have been honored as his child. In Christ, the bondage of sin is broken. Now we have power to obey that we didn't have before because the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in us. In Christ, the judgment that we deserved has fallen upon him as our substitute. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I hope that you look upon this and you see that this is in fact a celebration. Not just something weighty and heavy, not just something morbid, but something that looks back on what Christ has done for us and looks forward to the day that we'll be with him again. Would you pray with me? In the name of Jesus, we come to you, Father. We cannot come to you except through him. Thank you for his sacrifice for us. Thank you for the way you have planned and ordered our salvation. Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the Father and Holy Spirit of God. Thank you for applying it to us and breathing into us spiritual life. Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now, I pray that it really is that, a celebration, a joy and a delight knowing we've been delivered. Jesus, you are the true and the greater Passover lamb. Bring that home to our hearts and minds now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.